I wanted to mention some of the resources that are downstairs, just to familiarize you with them. Uh, the book, obviously, Shepherding a Child's Heart, which I think most of you are familiar with, uh, is available down there. There also is a parent's handbook that uh, looks the same on the cover, but it's got this orange spine, and this really deepens the material in, the, in Shepherding a Child's Heart. So it doesn't just review it, but it drills it down deeper. Uh, there also is a video series that goes with that. It's 12 sessions of uh, teaching through the content of the entire book. And uh, also uh, there's a Q&A or a PDF file in here that gives you uh, uh, handout sheets that can be used for uh, group use or, or even as individuals. Uh, there also uh, is a copy of the book Margie and I wrote together, Instructing a Child's Heart. We wrote this really in response to many conversations we have with young people when we're doing seminars on shepherding children. And it really, we think of it as a how-to book for uh, shepherding. It just gives you uh, ways of, of talking to your children about, about uh, that, the truths that, uh, that, that, that help them to make sense out of the things you say to them in times of discipline and correction. Well, this hour, we're going to talk about the family. What is a family? I give you a way of looking at family uh, that is, uh, I think, really transforming if you get a hold of it. As you know, uh, there's, uh, family is a hot topic in sociology. Uh, there's, uh, it's a topic that is continually being reviewed, and, of course, challenges are being made to the family and even what constitutes a family. But I want to think with you about three perspectives on family that I think are really transforming. Think of the family as a theological community, it's a place where we learn about God and, uh, and, and knowing God. Uh, it's a sociological community. It's a community where we learn to live with other people. And it's a redemptive community. It's a place where the redemption and the grace of the gospel is understood and, and where we're continually bringing God's grace into family life. And so if you get a hold of these three things, they really are, uh, are powerful things to think about in terms of family life. So first, thinking of the family as a theological community uh, is really recognized, it's recognizing the fact that our, our children are all worshipers. Uh, our, your children cannot help worshiping. I mean, we are all worshipers. As adults, we are worshipers. We can't help worshiping because we're made in the image of God. We're made for God. We're made for glory. We're made for wonder. We're made for delight. We're made for the endless joys of knowing God and and finding God, and you see even in the little children this, this passion uh, to find something exciting, something thrilling, something, something to delight in, and they come back to you to try to engage you in the things that they have found to be exciting and delightful. So foundational truth is just the fact that we are all worshipers. Our kids are worshipers. We are worshipers with them. And secondly, uh, we are interpreters of our world. Uh, your children interpret everything. They interpret people, they interpret circumstances, they interpret relationships. They, they are always interpreting, and they interpret the world through a worship lens. What they do with God ultimately determines how they interpret everything that they engage in. Uh, and in many ways, we could say all the problems of living are really, are really related to one's view of God. It's very interesting, that passage in Romans 1, Remember, Paul talks there about the fact that God is on display in his creation. So in the created order, the eternal power and divine nature of God are clearly seen through what he has made so that people are without excuse. 
But what do people do with that revelation? What happens when people who are uniquely designed for God fail to worship the God for whom they are made? They don't cease worshiping. They just worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. So they, 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 they do what verse 21 describes. They make this exchange. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. That's the key word here. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 25 says the same thing. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. That exchange, failing to worship God, worshiping something in the creation rather than God, finding some idol that I gravitate toward rather than God, is the core problem of all problems of humanity. It's very interesting. At the end of this passage, Paul says, since they didn't retain the knowledge of God, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. If you think about that list, it's hard to think of any problem that human beings have in living in this world, uh, any of the interpersonal problems, the breakdowns that happen in families or in our lives, it's hard to think of anything that is not comprehended in that list. All the problems we have of living are ultimately worship problems, and, and, and they're never solved on the level of behavior. They're, they're ultimately just solved on the level of worship. Now, in light of that, one of the most important callings God has given us is this calling of teaching our children the wonder of God's ways. It's really what Psalm 145 describes. Listen to these, these verses in Psalm 145. So I don't know a passage that does such a marvelous job of describing this aspect of parenting. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise you forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Now, Psalm 145 is describing family business for us. This is what families are to be doing. One generation committing the works of God to the next generation. That's what verse 4 says. This one generation will commend your works to another. Listen to the way that the works of God are described. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. This is a description, brothers and sisters, of family life. This is what it sounds like when one generation is commending the works of God to the next generation. He goes on, verse 10 through 15. Uh, All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. 
Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful to all of his promises, loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him. He upholds all who, who fall. He lifts all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. This is, this is family business, to tell of his kingdom, to tell of the glory of his majesty, of his splendor of his kingdom, of this everlasting kingdom, this kingdom that will endure, that endures from generation to generation. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways, loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord, that every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. That's family business. This is what God calls families to, to be, to be bringing the glory of God, the wonder of who God is to our children, to be showing God to be talking about God, even even as adults, if we're living, uh, as Margie and I live, as, as uh, adults who have married children and who are beyond child-rearing and not raising kids in our home, talking of God, talking of God's wonders, talking of His creation, encouraging one another with the things He does, His power, His might, His grace, His sovereignty, His his care, his protection, his compassion, his goodness, speaking of God all the time in family life is, is one of the dynamics of family living. Because, see, we're, we're made for the joys and delights of knowing God. That's what we're uniquely designed for. We're made in God's image. We're made for God. We're made for glory. We're made for, for the wonder and, and delight of God. Our children are, are made for for deep communion of seeing God's goodness and marveling at God and delighting in God because if they're going to live in this world in ways that are wise, they've got to know who God is. And so part of our family life is, is to show God to our kids, bringing God before them all the time. I like the way John Piper talks about this. As God is the, as this, the massive sun at the center of the solar system of, in life that has the mass to keep all the planets of life in their proper orbit. So if the planets of our education, our relationships, uh, your children's marriage one day, and grandchildren that God will give them, all those things that will be kept in their proper orbit and keep from crashing into each other, God must be the blazing sun at the very center of life that has the weight and mass to keep everything else in its place. Because our children, ourselves, we're instinctively and compulsively worshipers. We're going to worship something. And the wonder of who God is, the glory of God, has got to be continually in our focus. Now, now, what kinds of things can we talk about when we think about God? Think about God's, God is supreme in his authority. God says, all authority is mine in heaven and on earth. Uh, Abraham Kuyper, the famous Dutch theologian, said, you know, there's not one square inch of the, the entire creation over which God does not say, this is mine, this belongs to me. God places kings on their thrones. Uh, there's nothing in our lives that is so big it's outside the control of God. 
uh, education, friendship, political parties, systems of government, they're all under the control of God. And there's nothing so small, even those things that are infinitesimal and invisible to the human eye are under the control of God. As Daniel reminds us, you know, bless the name of the Lord forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and light dwells in him. The supremacy of God and in, in his authority over all creation. He, God is supreme in his changelessness. He has attributes that never change. Malachi 3 speaks of that. I, the Lord, do not change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. But these are things to amaze ourselves with, remind ourselves of, the things to amaze our children and our grandchildren about. I had a conversation recently with some teenagers saying, what are the reasons why you change? And they came up with good reasons. We change because of the unexpected, the unknown, the unanticipated and then I was able just to move that conversation and say, just imagine what a marvel God is. Nothing ever comes up on his blind side. There's nothing ever unknown to him, nothing outside his grasp or his comprehension. He knows all things actual, real, possible. And, and it, there's this changelessness in him because there, there is nothing unexpected. See, the family is a place for amazing your kids with God. It's for a place for amazing yourselves with the wonders of who God is. God is supreme in his eternality, self-perpetuating, without beginning, without end. I mean, if you let your mind wander with that, you can't imagine. It's hard, it's hard for us to even conceptualize a being that has no beginning and will have no ending. But think about what God is. I mean, there's nothing in God that is contingent or hinged upon something else or needs something else to function in order for him to be who he is. Or God is supreme in his grace. Ephesians 2 says that be, uh, be, it's by grace that we've been saved. We're awakened and brought to our need of God because of his incredible grace that shines his light into the darkness of our hearts and gives us the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus. God is supreme in his justice. The world is a place of injustice, and nothing, no one feels that more than children. Children are always concerned with it's not fair, and the world's a place of great injustice, but one day God will settle all accounts. And we get disturbed by injustice, but we live in the knowledge that one day God is going to settle all accounts, that every wicked deed that has been done any place on the planet throughout all the eons of history will be under his judgment, and, and, and th that sinners will be condemned and everlastingly judged, because God in his justice overlooks nothing. Amazing things for us to think about and dazzle our children with. God is supreme in his knowledge. Where we live in this internet era when so much information is instantly available to us. We can Google anything. But God not only knows all the data, he is the sum of all knowing. He knows everything real, everything actual, everything possible, everything potential. In fact, the reason we have absolute truth is in the word of God is because we have a God who is infinite in knowledge. So you have to have infinite knowledge in order to have absolute truth. That's why all human knowledge all must be held 
in the realization that something else might be discovered one day that will cause me to rethink everything I thought I knew. But that's, none of that's ever true with God because he, he, has abs, he has infinite knowledge. Therefore, He can give us absolute truth. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail of every being in heaven and earth. Amazing, what an amazing God. And we can dazzle our kids with the fact there's a God who knows more than all the information in all the libraries and all the books that have ever been written and all the information stored in cyberspace is just like a child's little golden book compared to his infinite knowledge. We have a God who's supreme in his love. Where do we see the love of God most powerfully displayed? It's the cross, isn't it? This is love, John says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be an atonement for our sins. And we want to help our children marvel with the fact that God, the love of God is what drove the son to the cross. The love of God drove, us, drove him to die for us even while we were yet sinners so that we can enter into the joys of being forgiven and accepted. See, the family is a place for that kind of theological thinking. The family, we have a God who's supreme in his, in his patience. Romans 15 describes him as the God of patience. It's that quality in God that enables us, him to forbear with us in our sin and not instantly bring to us what we deserve. Because if God did not forbear, if he instantly brought what we deserve, none of us would survive. We wouldn't be here to be saved, but we have a God who is, who is patient Long-suffering, Peter says, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But think of God as supreme in his power. Uh, what, Psalm 62, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that all power belongs to God. God created the entire universe by his word of power. He sustains all things by that same powerful word. Matter and energy were created by God. They're not eternal. The distant galaxies are sustained. We have a God who speaks words, and galaxies are formed, and solar systems are created, even beyond our ability to see or understand. And he is also, uh, in his power, holds those, even those microscopic uh, subatomic uh, galaxies that we can't even see are sustained by him. He possesses power to change the effects of the fall. He can make dead men live and dumb men speak and blind men, men see and deaf men hear and lame men walk and people who are wild and crazy and howl and cut themselves with stones and rocks into people who are, who are sane and clothed and in their right mind. He can even make sinners into saints who love righteousness and hate sin. And we want to help our children to see these things. We want to talk about the incredible power of God with each other, encouraging one another with God's power. We think about God who's supreme in his providence, who, who, who governs all of his creatures and all of their actions, so not a sparrow falls to the ground without your father. It doesn't say without your father knowing. <laughs> Look at it in Matthew 10. It's not a sparrow falls without your father. Every object that falls under the under the gravitational force of the earth, is carried to the ground by God. And we, the family is a place for talking about theology. It's a place for helping your children develop a robust view of God. And I, you know, it's amazing. You can engage children 
I want to urge you, those of you who are parents, you can engage children to talk about the marvels of God's attributes. I was riding along with one of my grandsons. We have nine grandchildren, as I mentioned, and because they all live nearby, we spend a Sunday afternoon together once a month. So I was on the way home with, uh, from a, a Lord's Day, and one of my grandsons wanted to ride with Grandpa. So I'm riding along with this five-year-old in the car with me. As we're driving along, he said, Grandpa, did you know that God is dangerous? I said, what do you mean, Ben? He said, my papa told me God can do anything he wants to do and no one can stop him. <laughs> and then to amaze me, he said, he could make this car disappear with us in it right now. Poof, we'd be gone. <laughs> so papa says he's good, but he's dangerous. Now, I think that's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge for a five-year-old. But the thing that struck me as I'm listening to this little guy chatter at me, is his dad had had a conversation with him some days earlier in which they had talked about this quality of God being able to do whatever he wants to do and no one can stop him. And his little five-year-old brain was still turning that over and still amazed by it, so he brought it up in conversation with me. I didn't prompt him. I didn't say, Ben, have you been doing any theological thinking this week? Uh, you know, he brought it up. It was because it was in his mind. See, we can engage children and talk about God so that the character of God and the glory of God, the wonder of God is, is always on our lips. And it is no less needful for people like Margie and me who are living Septuagintarians without children in the family to talk about God with one another. Because we need to be reminded of the glory and wonder of who God is. Think of the Son. Christ is supreme in his, in his purity. He never did anything wrong or correctable, never even a desire or a thought, never complained, never angry, never out of sorts. Think of Christ as supreme in, in his kindness and graciousness. He will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering flax. Think of Christ supreme in his obedience to the Father. He always did the Father's will, always spoke the Father's words, was obedient even to death on the cross. Or think of Christ supreme in his promise keeping, always keeps his words, always remembers his promises. They're always true and reliable. Or think of Christ as supreme in his wisdom, never bewildered, never confused, never wondering, what do I do now? Or think of Christ as supreme in his wrath. One day Christ will come in power and glory with his holy angels with him and will pour out the full cup of his wrath on all humanity that does not repent and believe the gospel. And human beings will call for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. There will be a day of final accounting. These are marvelous things to talk about as a family. Think of Christ's supremacy, or just joy in his own tri uh, the Godhead, the joy of the triunity of the Godhead. You know, God is a God without needs, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, continually living together in fellowship and communion throughout all time. Perfect communion, perfect fellowship, planning, execution of plans, delight in what they, in seeing their will done, the delight and joys of, of unity and communion with one another. No need in God to create a world. But out of the overflow of the joy of God in his own triunity, he creates this incredible world for us to enjoy. See, your children are made for those things. We are made 
for those delights. And bringing these sorts of truths to, us, to ourselves continually is the vision of Psalm 145. And you cannot overestimate the importance of showing your kids the glory of God. See, if they don't know who God is, if we don't know who God is, if we don't know how God thinks, if we don't know why God does what he does, what God feels, they will have no ground in finding satisfaction in him, no reason to celebrate his abundant goodness, no, no basis for finding him to be their ultimate source of joy. And delight in God, wonder in God, Joy in God cannot take place in a conceptual vacuum. The fires of faith have to be fed, and they're fed with meditating on the attributes of God. Uh, spiritual joy and delight and wonder don't take place without content, without truth. And we, our homes need to be places where we are talking all the time about God and the wonders of who God is. Real quickly, why is this so important? Uh, one is uh, your kids, you know, don't are, are hardwired for worship. What we what we must recognize is is your children are made as worshiping beings, and they're interpreters of their world. They interpret everything that comes to them, and the key to getting the interpretation right is understanding who God is because their interpretation tells them how to respond. So when, when something happens at home and the kids say, oh, what a bummer, that's an interpretation. And see, what you do with God will determine how you respond to all the circumstances of life. And the key to getting the interpretation right is the being in existence and glory of the God of the Bible. Now, obviously, this means for us as parents, we've got to be full of God ourselves. If we're going to be edifying influence for our spouse, we have got to be full of God ourselves. So it is the most natural thing for us to talk about the wonder and glory of the God. I, I, I was reading a sermon by Jonathan Edwards. He has this wonderful quote. He says, there's a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the beauty of that holiness and grace. It is as different as having the rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual taste of its sweetness in your palate. You see, if, if you're going to show your kids the wonders of God, you've got to have the taste of that sweetness on your palate. If you're going to talk to your spouse in edifying ways about who God is in the midst of all of life's turmoil and difficulties and travails, you've got to have the taste of it in your palate. So the family, the theological learning community. The second thing I want to think about is the family is a sociological community. If you think about the family as a theological community, recognizes the truth that we are all worshipers. It's really the first table of the law. You should love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second table of the law? You love your neighbor as you love yourself. So it's really recognizing that we are social beings. Uh, and because the entire law is summarized by loving God and loving others. Now, if you think about it, <clears throat> there's a shocking amount of conflict uh, in our homes. 
we see all kinds of conflicts, uh, uh, you know, daily. Uh, as we're raising children, we're confronted with conflicts. There are endless varieties. You know, you, the people fail to respond as people under authority, or they argue over who is going to go first, or they, they argue over where they're going to sit in the car, or they refuse to share their toys, or they mock one another's mistakes, or they argue over whose chair it is. I mean, have you ever had a situation where you're watching something, maybe a, a football game, or a TV program, or a movie, and, and a commercial comes on? And one of the kids has been sitting in a very nice chair, and the commercial comes on. He gets up to go to the bathroom, and someone slips into his chair. You know what's going to happen. And when he comes back, there's going to be a battle royale over this chair and whose chair it is. And probably the two people who are arguing over the chair, neither one of them actually own it. But uh, they're going to be arguing over it's my chair. Uh, so we, we have this endless variety of conflicts uh, in our homes. And we have to train ourselves to look at conflicts not, not with dread or as unnecessary problems, but really help, help us uh, uh, as opportunities for us to understand ourselves and for us to understand our children and for children to understand themselves and others. So we want to think about conflict biblically. And James chapter 4 helps us do that. James 4 has these amazing words, such an insightful statement about conflict. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and you don't give it, get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, but you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What is the cause of fights and quarrels? That's James's question. Why are there fights and quarrels? James does something very different with this than we typically do. Because we typically point outside of us as the cause for fights and quarrels. He wasn't listening to me. He makes me so mad. He laughed at me. He made fun of me. And we, we, we look outside ourselves uh, and we blame. We blame our, our spouse or we blame others for our conflicts. And James says if you want to deal with conflict, if you want to deal with anger, you don't look outside, you look inside. What is the cause of fights and quarrels, James says? Don't they come from your desires that wage war within? You fight and quarrel because you're not getting what you want. That's what James says. The cause of fights and quarrels is what's going on inside. Uh, people and circumstances are never the reason why I'm angry. They're when I get angry. The reason for anger is always what's internal. So James says fights and quarrels come from inside. And it's these desires that wage war within. See, the why of anger always has to do with the desires that are waging war within. Now, imagine this illustration with me. Imagine with me, I, now this is an old illustration for me because my kids are all grown, but imagine with me, I come home from work one day, I'm ready to pull my car into the driveway and there's a bicycle right in my path. I've got to put the car in park, get out of the car, move the stupid bicycle, get back in the car, pull the car into the driveway. I feel very provoked with the child who belongs to that bicycle. 
So I go in and I find him. I said, why did you leave your bicycle on the driveway? I told you a hundred times not to leave your bicycle on the driveway. If you ever do it again, I will drive over it. I mean, I would have done it today, but I was afraid of damaging my car, but I don't care. I will drive over it. No, don't you ever leave your bicycle on the driveway again. And this child says in his own defense, he says, Dad, I just went in for a minute because I had to go to the bathroom. I don't want your excuses. I don't care if you wet your pants. I never want you to leave your bicycle on the driveway again. Now, if you came along at this very moment, you said, Ted, 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 why are you so angry? What am I likely to say? I'll tell you why I'm angry. Kid left his bicycle on the driveway. I've told him a hundred times not to do that. That's why I'm angry. But think about it. The bicycle on the driveway is not why I'm angry. The bicycle on the driveway is when I got angry. It's the circumstance. Why am I angry? I want my will to be done on earth as God's will is done in heaven. I want to speak and it happens. I want to say, let there never be a bicycle in the driveway and there is never a bicycle in the driveway. I want to be God in this area. See, and I want my will to be law. And I want to speak things into existence. And this child is reminding me that I'm not God. And that's why I'm so angry. You see, the, the bicycle in the driveway is not why I got angry. The bicycle... And the driveway is when I got angry. The why of my anger is what's going on inside. If you get a hold of that, that'll be of incredible value to you. Because, you know, whenever I'm angry with my kids, what have I done? I've personalized their disobedience. I've made it about me. And that's why I'm so angry. See, if my heart is ruled by some desire, then there are only two ways I can respond to you. If you're helping me get what I want, I'm going to be happy with you. And if you're keeping me from what I want, I'm going to be upset and impatient with you. And in a biblical vision, this is the reason for conflicts. The reason for conflicts, is the social conflicts in our homes are rooted in the ways that our desires wage war within. Now, if you think desires, you could also just even put the word idols in that place. It's those things that I want. It's those, it's those epithemia. It's the Greek word. It's those epi-desires. It's those passions, those desires, those longings that I have are the reasons for conflicts. And you could overlay on top of that so many of the things we were talking about in the last hour, successful children, successful family, business success, prosperity, uh, health and fitness, all kinds of things that I will put in that place of those things that I must have as a condition of my happiness. And James says, they're the reasons for the conflicts you have. The reasons for the conflicts are these things that you have that you have determined you must have in order to be okay. Now the family is a wonderful place for us to work through these issues of social conflict. It's a place for children to learn the ugliness of self-love. It's a place for them to learn the excellence of sacrificial love for others. It's a place for them to learn to be people like, like Timothy. Paul describes him in Philippians chapter two. He says, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your needs. 
because everyone looks after his own things and not the things of Christ. But Timothy's one of these rare people who's genuinely interested in the needs of others. So in this vision, the conflicts are not unwanted interruptions to the business of family life. They're a very vital part of the business of family life. And truth, this truth from James chapter 4 is not something that we trot out just to adjudicate the argument in the moment, but it's part of an understanding we want to teach to our own hearts and to the hearts of our children and grandchildren so they understand the reasons for conflicts. The reason I get angry with other people is because there's something I want that I'm not getting. And that's why I'm angry with others. And the anger is not them. They're not why I'm angry. They're when I'm angry. The why of my anger is always what's going on inside. And then the third way I want us to think about the family is that the family is a redemptive community. If the family is a, social, is a theological community. We're thinking of, of ourselves as worshipers. The family is a sociological community. We're thinking of ourselves as social beings, but here we're thinking of ourselves as sinners. And often the benefits of fights and quarrels are lost because we try to solve problems without reference to the gospel. You see, the problems, the conflicts we have in our home are marvelous opportunities, and the opportunity is found within the conflict. Because this conflict gives you an opportunity, a real-life opportunity, to address the issues of the heart, because the failures and fights show the heart. The idols of the heart are on display. And the temptation for us is to try to resolve these conflicts without the gospel. And parents develop elaborate systems of trying to avoid conflicts, their children having conflicts with one another. I remember one time we were on a road trip and my father got so upset with us fighting over, the, each, over with each other in the back seat of the car. He said, okay, so I'm gonna build a brick wall right down the middle of the back seat of the car. And he, he described this wall to us and you know, you can't even see what's going on on that side. And he can't see what's going on on that side. And you can't reach each other and so forth. If we hadn't gotten back on the road and driven more than a mile when my brother pointed out that he could take one of the bricks out of the wall and he could still reach through. <laughs> you know, we, you know it, it was, a, it was a, 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 a foolish attempt to solve a conflict without dealing with the real issue. And we do it with our children in so many ways. You know, sometimes we regulate the sinfulness of their hearts rather than addressing it. So the kids are fighting over the toy Okay, I'm going to set the timer, the stove timer. For the next 10 minutes, he gets it. You leave him alone, let him play with it. When it dings, then he gets the toy for 10 minutes, and that's what we'll do. Now, does that solve the problem of the, this boiling and surging, the self-centeredness inside this child's heart? All we've done is we've regulated it. You know what happens. The child who's waiting for the toy, he's watching that timer, he's watching it tick down, he's bumping the table, hoping he can make it tip faster, and the moment it dings, he dies for the toy. My turn! He takes the toy. You know, we haven't solved the conflict. And see, so often parents are trying to solve the conflicts at home without reference to the gospel. And these conflicts are marvelous opportunities for talking about the gospel, for helping our children see how profoundly they need grace. 
Because a child cannot love God and love others without grace. God calls us to do what is impossible for us to do without the grace of God. We're to love others in the way that we love ourselves. You cannot do that without the grace of the gospel. That's, and that's why it's so important for us to hold the law of God with our children and say, this is what God calls you to. It's a standard that you cannot meet, but he calls you to love your brothers and sisters from the heart. You see, so often I talk to parents who will say to me, uh, well, we know our kids aren't saved yet, so how can we expect them to love one another from the heart? So the temptation is to lower the standard. Well, since you can't love each other from the heart, can't you just be nice? But just being nice is not God's standard. And if I come up with some superficial human standard of acceptable behavior that doesn't deal with the problem of the heart, I've moved my children away from their need for the gospel. Because one of the functions of the law of God is to be a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. There's a tension that is established as I realize God is calling me to do something and to be something that I cannot be without grace, that tension is designed to bring me to Christ and to help me to see how profoundly I need grace. Remember one night, one our little girl, our daughter, she was a middle child, and she, she had gone to bed earlier and I passed her bedroom and she was in there crying. She was sobbing. I could hear her crying. I went in. Honey, what's the matter? Knelt down by her bed, rubbed her back. What's the matter, honey? She said, through sobs, she says, Daddy, you and Mommy are always telling me I have to love my brothers from the heart. I can't do it. They're so mean to me. I can't love them from the heart. She's sobbing. It was a wonderful opportunity to say, you're right. You can't love your brothers from the heart. That's why Jesus came. Because daddy can't love you or mommy or your brothers in the ways that he ought to without Christ and without grace. And you can't love without Christ and without grace. So it was a marvelous opportunity to talk to her how, about how profoundly she needed the grace of God. Now see, the wonderful thing too about dealing with heart issues is we can stand in solidarity with our children so that we're not distancing ourselves hypocritically from them. We're not saying to our, our eight-year-old, I can't believe you're so selfish. Your little brother's going to take a nap in five minutes. Would it kill you if he played with your toy for five minutes? I can't believe you're so selfish. You won't circumcise Philistine. How'd you ever get into this Christian family? <laughs> now, that's hypocritical, isn't it? Is there any adult in this room who doesn't understand selfishness? Any unselfish people here? We're all compulsively self-serving, aren't we? Sometimes at night I'll say to Margie, would you like a cup of ice cream? I just get a cup because we're always counting calories. I might get a cup two or three times, but I just get a cup. <laughs> so I go to the kitchen and get us each a cup of ice cream, head back up the stairs, carrying these cups of ice cream. I'm feeling very proud of myself because I went to get the ice cream. I may have such a servant. <laughs> I've got to think of some way to draw this to her attention when I get upstairs. But all the while, while I'm congratulating myself, for this act of self-sacrifice, I also weigh these cups. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember which is the better cup of ice cream, you know, which is the one where we firmly compacted the ice cream into the cup, and which one is the one with these light, airy scoops of ice cream. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but I've had times when I marked them with different spoons. So, so I wouldn't forget when I got upstairs, you know. The tragic moment, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I mean, you've got to get it right the first time. 
Now, now, now think about this. My, my dear wife has been washing my dirty socks all these years, and I'm willing to cheat her out of a couple tablespoons of ice cream. And yet I'll say to this kid, I can't believe you're so selfish. Do you see the hypocrisy of that? But see, if I deal with the heart, I can stand in solidarity with this selfish kid. And I can say, I understand the struggle you have. I understand the struggle of selfishness. And there's hope for people like you and Daddy. So I don't have to figure out how do we get God into this. If I'm dealing with the heart, I have no other place to go. Our only hope is the grace and power of the gospel to change us and transform us. So I can stand in solidarity with my children. And we can respond to in, uh, in, in light of God's great redemptive work. So the family is a redemptive community for people who sin and are sinned against. So we live in a fallen world. Things are broken. The Bible is very realistic about the problem of sin and fallenness. And you might ask yourself, then how are we different from any other family that has conflicts? Well, our homes are places where there's grace, where the goodness of the gospel is being rehearsed again and again. We're reminding ourselves that, 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 that there was one who was rich, who for our sakes became poor, so through, through, we through his poverty might be rich. We're not blaming each other, we're not threatening, we're not belittling, but we're just remembering the grace of God and taking everything to the grace of the cross. It's a community where there's forgiveness and where forgiveness and transformation are understood, where there's hope because we recognize we have a God who does heart transplant surgery. He takes out stony hearts. He gives us a heart of flesh. He puts a spirit within us. We, we have hope because Jesus came to live in our world. He can look at the world through our eyes. He didn't stand off in heaven and say, hey, you down there, get your act together. But he came and he dwelt with us and he experienced the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. There's hope for us because he can transform us and change us and empower us and forgive us. And of course, it's a community for, for uh, of forgiving and forgiveness. Remember uh, that passage in Ephesians 4.32 makes the experience of forgiveness the model for forgiveness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as in Christ. God has forgiven you. It's the experience of being forgiven by Christ that becomes a model for what I must extend to others who sin against me. Now, if we get a hold of these things, if our families are these theological places where we're talking about God, it's a sociological place where we're identifying the causes of human suffering that come from the desires that wage war within, and we're reminding ourselves of the redemption and the grace and power of the gospel family life can be transformed. And as I talk to you about that, every true Christian in this room says, that's what I want for my family. I want us to be a family where we talk freely and naturally about God. I want us to be a family where we understand the problem of sin and we're realistic about sin and we're not just blame shifting and belittling each other. I want us to be a family where we're bringing the grace and power of redemption to our kids all the time and not giving them hoops to jump through in order to be good enough for mom and dad. Within you, you say, yes, I want that. Every true Christian says, that's the kind of family I want for us to have. But there's a tension because you also have within you a sense of, I'm not very good at this. We fail at this. Sometimes days pass at our house where we don't talk about God. 
we don't think about conflict in terms of attitudes of heart and heart issues. We get focused just on the details of the conflict and trying to adjudicate that. We don't bring the grace and power of redemption to our family enough. So you have a tension between, on the one hand, you say, yes, I want that. On the other hand, you say, I'm not seeing this in my life as I ought to. How are you going to resolve that tension? So you can't just go home and beat yourself up over your failures. We've got to come to Christ. We've got to come to Christ with our neediness and say, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your enablement. If our family is going to be the kind of family that you've called us to be, we ask that you would come to us and change us and transform us and empower us and help us to live for your glory. The grace to do what God calls us to do is found in Christ. It's not found by looking inside. If you look inside, you're like Mother Hubbard's cupboard. There's not even a bone there. But if you look at Christ, there are endless stories of grace to be what God's called us to be. Let me pray with you. Father, we ask that you would help us to be people who, whose family life is transformed by the grace and power of the gospel. Work these things in us. Help us to talk about Christ and about God freely and naturally. Help us to understand conflicts in a biblical vision, to see our, our need of internal change, and help us to experience the grace and power of your gospel. We pray this for Christ's glory. Amen. <laughs>